The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Isaiah 6 1 says this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? By the way, do you catch the word us there? That's the Trinity right there in the Old Testament. And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. And hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, if you would, I'd like you to take out your notes. You should have a big eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper there with some notes on it. And I, at the top of the page, you will find this sentence. God is, and then you'll see a blank. And I want you to finish that sentence by writing down the first word that comes to your mind that you believe describes God. All right? God is, and then whatever comes to your mind, one word and go. Come on, I want to see everybody writing. A little interaction, interactive exercise here. Let me ask you this. Are you finished? If you're finished, raise your hand. All right. I'll give you a couple more seconds here. Some of y'all writing some big theological words. I know. That's what's taking so long. How many of you wrote down the word love or loving or something like that? Raise your hand. Okay, many of you. 
How many of you wrote down the word like merciful? How many of you wrote down the word good? God is good. It's a big one, right? God is great. God is great. So yeah, there are many, many, many answers that you could have written down that come straight from the Bible, and all of those are certainly great answer, uh, answers. They're attributes and characteristics that so well describe our great God. But do you know that there is one word in the Bible that is used to describe God that is emphasized in a way that we do not see in any other attribute or characteristic of God in all of the Bible. In the English language, when we want to convey through writing emphasis, what do we use? We might underline a word or phrase. We might use a bold type font, put an asterisk beside it, an exclamation point at the end. If you're texting and you're mad at somebody, you want to emphasize, what do you do? All caps. I love like when older folk don't get that and they're just screaming at you all the time. They don't get it. I used to have a boss that just, man, I always thought he was mad at me. I finally asked him, why are you so mad all the time? He said, what do you mean? I said, you always like shout at me when you're texting. He said, how's that possible? I said, you're writing in all caps. <laughs> some of y'all just, you know, some of you are, are like, oh, that's why I'm so misunderstood all the time. I just freed some people right now. In Hebrew literature, one of the ways that magnitude or emphasis is conveyed is by the use of repetition. For instance, in Genesis 14.10, the English Standard Version reads that now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, but the original language actually says that that valley was full of pit pits. All right, and that's not a typo. What it means is that these are not just pits, but these are the piteous pits of them all. All right? Now, you'll recognize this in the New Testament. Often, if you're King James, you know, only, you, you know, you'll remember these words. Jesus often would begin a sentence with, Very, verily, verily, I say unto you. If you're English Standard Version, you'll say, truly, truly, I say unto you. You see the emphasis. Jesus is saying, listen up. This is really important. Now, to be sure... I don't want to get any emails about this. Everything Jesus says is important, all right? But these are things that he was just had absolute, were absolutely crucial, and he would begin those sentences with verily, verily, or surely, surely, truly, truly, something along those lines. So do you know that there is only one attribute of God in all of the Bible that's repeated three times consecutively? The Bible does not say that God is love, love, love. It does not say that he is just, just, just. It does not say that he is merciful, merciful, merciful. But in this text, we find that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. And you know what? That, this is an attribute that we don't focus enough on. Let me ask you just for fun. Did anybody write down God is holy for your answer? Anybody? A couple of you. Great, great job. And, and there wasn't a right or wrong answer to that. Um, that the other answers were great as well. But I want you to know, this is something in the church that we just do not focus enough on. And I think perhaps because holiness, God's holiness is very difficult to understand. But we're starting a new series today entitled The Holiness of God. I didn't put it at the top of your paper because I didn't want you to cheat at the beginning, all right? Keep you honest here. Well, I'm going to be spending the next two weeks at least on Isaiah chapter 6 
Today, I want to simply preach on the holiness of God, and next week, we're going to look at how that holiness impacts our lives. So if you have your notes, I want you to write this down in the beginning. We're going to first look at holiness defined. Holiness defined. To be fair, holiness is a really difficult word to define. I'm going to give, do the best job that I can. But when we think of holiness, often we think of purity. All right, God is pure. He is without sin, and he is certainly that. But holiness goes beyond simple purity. The primary meaning of holiness, we've talked about this before, it's simply separate. But we've got to be careful here. The late R.C. Sproul has some of the most helpful teachings on the holiness of God, and I've depended on his books a lot for this study But in this book, Holiness of God, Dr. Sproul points out that God is not just separate. In other words, he's not separate in the way that a chair is separate from the table. But his holiness is transcendent, meaning that it extends beyond usual limitations. All right. So to to transcend means to rise above something or to go beyond something. All right. Everybody have that? Because if you don't get this, you're not going to be able to track where we're going. So God's holiness transcends, that means he transcends us, his creation. When we talk about the holiness of God, we mean that he is above us, he is beyond us. So Sproul would define God's holiness as primarily meaning that God is transcendentally separate. That just means he's above us. So you can write that down. I'll give you a a, a separate, uh, you know, just a, a minute to figure out how to spell that word, all right? So God is transcendentally separate. That means he's above us. And the scripture says this in Isaiah, actually, God's ways are what? Higher than our ways. And they're not just different. You get the difference here? It's not just that God is different from us. It's he's above us. He's beyond us. He is holy. Amen? So the word holy calls attention to really all that God is. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, God is holy because God is God. It's almost synonymous when we talk about his holiness. It's almost synonymous with God's deity. Oh, it's the sum of who God is. Holiness is a sum of God. It's not a single attribute. Okay, holiness is not just one characteristic, one attribute, but it includes all of God's attributes, all of his characteristics. For instance, his love is holy. In other words, his love transcends ours. It goes beyond, above ours. It's steadfast. It's unchangeable. Hallelujah. So as we look at now, with that in mind, we're going to look deeper into the first few verses of this text, and we're going to get a picture of how holy and how marvelous God is. Listen, friends, he is infinitely beyond us. And my hope is for the next few minutes that we can meditate on the beauty and the glory of God, his magnificence, his greatness, all right? Now, listen, I, I just want to say this. that The enemy, has. this has been a tough week for me, and I, I say this often. We give way too much credit to the devil. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we get a hang now. We're like, devil, I rebuke you, you know? Um, we, we give him way too much credit. But I think the devil has been after me this week because he doesn't like it when we brag on God. 
He doesn't like us to know the God we serve and how glorious. Because you know one of the biggest problems in America today in the church is we have such a small view of God. Much Christian preaching today is just, it's not much more than motivational speeches. We need to sometimes relish in and understand the God that we serve. He's an awesome God. He is a holy God. And so uh, even this morning, I'll just be honest with you, in, in, before I even got to church, we had a little bit of uh, Christian intensive fellowship. How many have those moments? Uh, sometimes it's Sunday morning crazy hour. You feel like that in your home? And that doesn't happen often anymore because my kids are a little bit older, so they don't drive us as nuts anymore in the, on Sunday morning trying to get them ready and out of the house. But listen, it was different this morning, and I was frustrated. I was frustrated. And then I got to church, and some things happened here, and then sound issues and all of this. And, and I just I, I sat there as we were singing that last song. I said, Lord, I'm not going to let this hold me back. I'm going to preach with as much unction and power and declare your glory today. And I hope that you get a, a, a glimpse of the awesomeness of our God as we move through this. So we're going to move now into holiness described. Holiness described as we look at this text. Number one, write this down. The Lord is everlasting. The Lord is everlasting. In verse 1, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. I don't know if you know this story, but King Uzziah died in the 8th century B.C. Listen to me. He ascended to the throne at 16 years of age, and he ruled Judah for 52 years. 52 years. Think of that. One leader, 52 years. In the last 52 years, we have witnessed the administrations of Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, George W., Obama, and now Trump. Uzziah began leading in great godliness. For 52 years he led, and he, he started off really well. He actually brought spiritual reform to the people of God. And they, in turn, experienced great blessing from the Lord. But Uzziah's story took a tragic turn towards the end. He became very arrogant, and he tried to take on presumptuously some of the duties that God had reserved only for priests. In other words, king wasn't good enough anymore. I've got to act as priest as well. It's insatiability. It's never enough. He wanted to be priest as well. And because of this, he was tragically struck with leprosy, which means he would have been cut off from the house of the Lord and, the, and his people because he would have been considered unclean. But though his story did not end well, listen to me, he was a beloved king. Can you imagine having a leader for 52 years, one president whom you loved, and now they're gone? When he died, there was a time of national mourning, and there was a lot of, uncertainty amongst the people of God. Now, I want you to understand this. Because of the prosperity that God's people were experiencing, they started to see spiritual decline in the land, much like what's happening today. God blesses his people. You know, they, they're seeking God, and all of a sudden God's blessing comes upon them. They're walking in great prosperity, and now they don't need him anymore. And oh, if that's not America, 
everything used to be about the Lord. That's all you heard. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Remember, you used to even start your day at school with prayer. Now you're not even allowed to pray in school. There's been a shift. Why? Because God has blessed us, and now our country feels like, many people in our country feel like we don't need him anymore. And so that's a scary place to be, and judgment is getting ready to come upon the people of God. So Isaiah, during all of this, is wondering, what are we going to do? And he presumably is at the temple during this point after Uzziah's death, and he's seeking God. God, where do we go from here? The king is dead. What's going to happen? It's bad enough with the king alive. What's going to happen now? It seems like everything's spinning out of control. And then Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. (laughs) You see the Lord, it changes everything. It changes your attitude. The Lord is everlasting. Now, we know from Scripture that no person can see the face of God in his essence and live. What then did Isaiah see? Well, according to John 12, 41, Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exciting to me. He saw the pre-incarnate God the Son, Here's the point of what Isaiah is seeing. This is why he's starting here. The earthly king is gone. It might look uncertain, but all of a sudden, Isaiah gets a glimpse of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he knows that the heavenly, almighty, ultimate king still reigns. In other words, the king might be dead, the earthly king might be dead, but the heavenly king is alive and well, and his kingdom will never end. Number two, not only is God everlasting, but the Lord is also sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, if you have your Bible, it might be like this on your phone as well, but if you have a printed Bible, you will notice that the word Lord is printed capital L, lowercase o, r, and d. Other times, if you go on down, I believe, to verse 5 and other times in this chapter, you'll see this, that same word, Lord, printed in all capital letters. Anybody see that? Okay, a few of you. This is to distinguish between two different Hebrew words that are used in the original language. So I, I want you to get this. We're going to go a little bit deep today, okay? The word Lord with the capital L, lowercase O-R-D, The Hebrew word there is Adonai, and this means literally the sovereign one. Sproul points out that this is not the name of God, but instead this is a title given to God, and it's likely that this is the supreme title for God. This is the supreme title for God given to him in the Old Testament. All right, so you have capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Sovereign one, that's the title of God, the supreme title of God. Then you have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the Hebrew name, Yahweh. This is the sacred name of God that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14 where God says, I am who I am, showing him that he is the one true self-existent God. Now when we refer to the current leader of our country, We refer to him as President Donald Trump. 
All right? President's his title. Donald J. Trump is his name. Adonai or Adonai is the title reserved for the Most High God. You know, I, no matter what, I will not have, unless I make my way up, I don't have any aspirations to do this, but I'm not going to be ever called President of the United States. You can't just call me that and it hold any weight. I, I can pretend or whatever all I want, but I'm not President of the United States. Adonai is the title reserved for the Most High God. It's His alone. Now, here's what's really cool. Listen to this. This shows the deity of Christ. When Christ is called Lord, he is invested with the New Testament equivalent of this Old Testament word, Adonai. Jesus is called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It shows the deity of Christ. And so in this vision, Isaiah sees that the Lord, the sovereign one, the name that's above every name is on the throne. So not, a, not only is God everlasting, but he is also sovereign. And this is important to understand because when our plans fail, when our leaders fail, when our future seems uncertain, and sometimes in our country, I mean, you watch the news, you get that idea. Here's what I want you to know, church. We need to remember that the sovereign one is on the throne ultimately. The King of kings and Lord of lords is on the throne. You know, God is sovereign. Sometimes we think that God is up there kind of wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do with this mess. That is never the case. He is the sovereign God. He's in control, which leads me to my next point. Not only is he sovereign, but he is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Did you catch that? High and lifted up. His throne is above every throne. There's not a leader that has ever lived or the ever who will ever live that will put his throne or her throne above the throne of Jesus Christ. Our God reigns and he's all powerful. He is omnipotent. God is holy, which means he has holy power, which means that his power is infinitely beyond any created thing. We may think a president or some monarch, some leader, some king, some queen has power, but oh, it's laughable when compared to the power of our great God. Listen to me. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Isaiah 46.10, the Lord says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Hallelujah. So God being all powerful is really horrific news if you are at odds with him. Hear me, friends. If you're not in right standing with God, you ought to tremble at the thought of this. You may think you can mock God. You may think that you can be a nominal Christian. But it's a fearful thing to be at odds with the living, sovereign, everlasting God. And if you're at odds with him, you will one day give an account for that. But, assuming that I'm talking to mainly believers in here today, this is glorious news. This is glorious news. What a great security it is to know that the all-powerful, almighty God 
that his purposes and plans will never fail. So matter, no matter what it looks like in your life today, if you're walking with the Lord, you know that truly all things are working together for your good and his glory. No matter what it looks like, you can rest your head on your pillow at night and sleep like a baby. Why? Because God is sovereign and he's all-powerful. And if God be for us, who can't be against us? See, that verse means nothing to somebody with a low view of God. If they think he's up there just wringing out his hands, wondering, what am I going to do? But you get the right understanding of God, and then you can boldly proclaim, if God be for me, who can be against me? Hallelujah. The Lord's all-powerful. Number four, the Lord is majestic. The Lord is majestic. The Bible says the train, or it could be translated the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Now, you might take my man card here. That's all right. I gave it away a long time ago. But if you caught the royal wedding yesterday, go ahead, get to laughs out. It's all right. It's all right. Make fun of your preacher. If God be for me, who can be against me? You likely noticed Megan's stunning wedding dress with the train and a veil. I looked it up. Yeah, I did. For a sermon illustration, just to clarify, was 16 feet long. Isn't that crazy? And you watched it. If you watched the wedding, and I did watch a little bit. By the way, did you see that preacher? Come on, somebody. I loved it. I mean... So many people, multitudes of people watching this all over the world in the name of Jesus is being proclaimed. Hallelujah. But I watched as he was preaching. And then as they said their vows, and I, I watched that, that, that train and that veil go down the stairs, down, just billowing down the aisle. Incredible. A dress of great splendor and just luxurious. The idea that God's train fills the heavenly temple testifies, friends, of his unmatched beauty and splendor. Oh, what a beautiful picture. The Bible says that God's creation declares his glory. I want you to think about this. The beauty of the heavens and the earth. When you look up on a clear night and you see the multitudes of stars or you get an image from the Hubble Space Telescope and you see the multitudes of planets and stars and all of this, this vast universe, or when you look, you're at Florida, come on somebody, you're at Florida and you're on the beach and you're looking at the vastness of the ocean, you can just see from miles and miles, you just, nothing but water. And then you just consider the greatness of the human body. I, I, I was telling some guys today, I said, listen, I don't see how you can watch a baby being born and not believe in God. It's, I mean, the fact that I can hold this microphone and speak and you can hear me and I can move my fingers, it's, it's amazing. Here's what I want you to consider. If God's creation is this spectacular, can you imagine the creator himself? Just consider it. You know why I believe that God had to, to, to let the heavens declare his glory and let us bear his image? Because we couldn't comprehend 
any other way a fraction of God's majesty. (laughs) And we still, listen, I I love Piper said this years ago. He said, when when you look up at the stars and you see the vastness of the universe, he said, listen, it's an understatement. It's a vast understatement of the glory of God. But we get a glimpse of how majestic our God is. He's all-powerful. His train is longer than any other king. It's more splendid than the most beautiful bride dress. We serve a beautiful, wonderful, powerful, majestic God. Number five, the Lord is revered. The Lord is revered. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. These angelic six-winged beings called seraphim are mentioned, at least by this name, only here. Now, I want you to think, these heavenly hosts, these, these angelic beings are not tainted by human sin. Think about this. Yet, they still cover their faces and their feet in the presence of Almighty God. You know what it's like to walk from a dark room, maybe a movie theater or some really dark room right out into the direct sunlight. You kind of shield your eyes, squint to block yourself from the brilliance of the sun. These heavenly beings, even with their status, must cover their eyes to shield themselves from the brilliance of His majestic presence. And in great humility, they cover their feet. What are, they doing here? what are they doing here? They're showing that they, these angels, have the utmost respect and reverence for God. John Piper points out that men and women in Scripture often tremble at the presence of angels. You see an angel visit someone and they tremble, they cower in fear, and yet the angels themselves tremble in the presence of God. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. Church, we need more reverence today. You know, the, um, the church over the last 20, 30 years has progressed in some ways. I think there's things, positive changes that have happened. But in some ways, I feel like we've regressed. And one of those ways is I don't believe we have the reverence that we ought to have for the Lord anymore. There's this saying out right now that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Friends, Jesus is not my homeboy. Jesus is my Lord. And I hear people say all the time, you just talk to Jesus like he's your buddy. Well, I I get that Jesus is not impressed with Christianese language. But friends, he's not just your buddy. Yes, he's a friend that sits closer than a brother. I get that. But we don't approach him, hey, buddy, what's going on? Hey, dude. No. We ought to approach him with great reverence. Great reverence. If the angels approach him with great reverence and humility, how much more us? Remember the old days, folks? A few of you. When if you ran in church as a kid, you might die. Remember when men would take their hats off when they walk in a sanctuary? Remember when, again, if you were a kid, you did not say a word. You didn't move during the preaching of the word. Why? Reverence. Reverence. 
You know what I fear? We didn't have to entertain people in the old days. And I don't feel like we have to entertain you, by the way. Um, but, but if you read a lot of the modern church books right now, you want to grow your church, here's what you do. You need this and you need this. It's all this flashy stuff. And I'm sorry, but if you're bored with God, there's an issue. There's an issue. I'm not saying that we can't. I mean, I don't think church should be this, like, gravely somber. I mean, we, we ought to be people of joy. There's a balance. But I'm saying it shouldn't be hokey. There ought to be a reverence here. There ought to be a reverence here. And you and I, we need to, to honor the Lord. And what's the greatest way we honor him? It's through obedience. Don't say, Jesus, I love you. Don't say, Lord, I honor you. Lord, I, I, I respect you. And then go out and profane his name. People today give little thought of coming into his sanctuary to worship. They don't prepare their hearts. We have to cheerlead everybody every week to get them singing or going, or, you know, whatever. No, we ought to prepare our hearts. We're going to God's sanctuary. I realize that God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. I realize that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. I could talk about that for a while too, but I won't. Um, but listen, this is a place, this sanctuary is a place we've dedicated to God as a gathering of the saints to worship him as one people. And there ought to be a great respect. Um, one of my frustrations, and I used to be for this before I really thought through it. Do you know the most um, popular church chair now that they sell? One of the most popular ones? It has a cup holder in it. You mean to tell me you cannot put your Coca-Cola down or your coffee down in the presence of God? Could you imagine going before a president or a king, being like, hey, great to meet you. You know what I mean? Oh, now I have bottled water up here, so confess your sins one to another. My throat gets a little dry. But, but I'm, I'm, it's not snack time when we come together and worship, <laughs> all right? It's not snack time. It's worship time, all right? I, I'm just saying, you, you see, I, I feel like we need more reverence for God. And as we, I think the issue is that we forget how big he is. We just think of God as this cute, cuddly, loving, oh, he doesn't really care about anything. Are you kidding me? Have you read the Bible? Please go back and read the Old Testament. It's the same God in the New Testament, by the way. It is a fearful thing to take the presence of God lightly. He's to be revered. And finally, number six. The Lord is worthy of praise. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This angelic song is declaring truth about God, that he is holy, that he's infinitely above and beyond us. Remember, God's holiness primarily speaks of his superlative greatness, his separateness from us, that he is infinitely above and beyond us. Now hear me in John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says these words. God is spirit. She's saying, should we worship on this mountain or that mountain? She's worried about the technicalities or the styles of worship. Jesus just stops. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Let me ask you, what benefit do we have for considering all of this about God, his great holiness today? 
I'll tell you what the benefit is. One, we need to know the God we serve. We need to know the God we serve. The more you know him, the more you love him, the more in awe you will be of him. I sat in my office yesterday finishing up my studies, and I've wrestled with this text all week. Wrestled with it all week. And as I, some of these things begin to come to light, I was just meditating on these six points in my office. And I just went out to the piano that we have in the fellowship hall. And I just began to sing about the holiness of God and the majesty of God. I couldn't help it. Tears swelled up in my eyes if I just considered the greatness of God. In knowing and meditating on these truths, we can worship God properly. We're to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The angels were worshiping in truth. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. And we have a problem with worship today. It has nothing to do with style. I don't care if you sing hymns or if you sing modern worship songs. I'm not convinced that Jesus cares that much about the style. It's not like we're singing the style of King David, all right? I think that those worship wars, so to speak, were a distraction from keeping us from dealing with the main problem. The main problem is most of us sing words that we don't understand, sometimes words that are popular but not true about God, We sing about a God that we really don't spend time with and know. And so I I encourage you, church, reflect on these purposes so that this ought to today overflow in worship. It's the kind of worshipers God's looking for, those that know him, those that love him, that love his word. Jesus said this. He said when he was praying his priestly prayer in John 17, prays that we would be sanctified. He said, sanctify them in truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So why do we dig into the word like this and consider all there is to know about God? Why? So that we can worship him in truth. And so here's what we're going to do. We had something else planned for the end of service here. We're going to sing together with voices just crying out to God, praising Him as the angels do. In just a moment, we're going to do that. But here's what I want you to consider in closing. All all of this, listen, this all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, holy God that is so separate from us, so beyond us, bids us to come to Him. He bids us to come to Him. This holy, majestic God chose us, called us, saved us, and communes with us. I don't know of any greater honor. Listen, when I was watching just a little bit of that uh, wedding yesterday, I watched that pastor, and I thought, how cool. I'm only a couple generations removed from the other side of the pond. That's why I still drink hot tea instead of coffee. Don't judge me. I love that culture. I loved why I thought, how cool would it be to get to preach at the royal wedding? But then when I was in my office just a few hours later, I thought, oh, I've been invited to something much greater. I've been invited to the table of the Lord, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ones whose trains fills the temple. 
And I'm daily invited. He said, boldly come to his throne. Come to his throne. Boldly come to his throne. No greater honor. No greater honor. And yet, we don't take it. And I want you to consider all this, because if you're here today and you're in despair, you're depressed and you feel like, I don't know why all this is happening in my life, just consider the majesty of God. So often, it's like the disciples in the boat, and the waves begin to beat vehemently against the boat, and you know the, the rains are pouring, and water's coming in the boat. They're beginning to sink. They're so concerned about the problem that they miss who's in the boat with them, Jesus Christ himself. And so many times, we focus on our, what are actually little bitty problems. They might not seem like it, but in comparison to a mighty God, all-powerful God, they're nothing. If God can part the Red Sea, he can fix your marriage. If God can turn water into wine, he can turn your finances around if you'll walk in obedience to his word with those finances. He can do whatever he wants, with or without it. He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. If God can do all the miracles, both good and bad, plagues and supernatural healings and all these things, whatever, I don't care if it's physical or mental, he is able It's nothing for God. Nothing. And don't be freaked out about what's going on in our world because the world sits in the palm of his hand and his purposes cannot be thwarted. So don't be despondent. Don't be depressed. Realize the God whom you serve. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.